Good morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I want to share a little story to kind of, it's a Father's Day story, kind of, I think, just kind of warm up for fathers. Um, I was driving this past week on my day off. I had three of our kids. Uh, Tanya had the youngest. And I was heading over to Lowe's to pick up some things I needed to get, check something off the honey-do list. And on the way back, I'm, I had the kids all day with me. And I, I said to, uh, or actually Eden said to me, our oldest daughter, she says, um, Dad, do you know, you're the best dad I've had. <laughs> now, I thought for a minute, and I kind of chuckled like that too. And I said, well, honey, I'm the only dad you've had. And Luke, our oldest boy, pipes up. And he says, no, that's not true, Dad. I'm like, oh, really? There's something I need to know here. He says, he says well, Dad, God is also our dad, our father. Now, that kind of warmed my heart. I thought, oh, that's sweet. Then he goes, and so you're our second best dad because, <laughs> and, you know, I, I thought about that. You know what? If I have to fill in second best to God, I think I'll take that. That's the deal. Uh, as I think about Father's Day, though, Father's Day, as I stand up here and say happy Father's Day, and this is the day that we celebrate fathers, there's a number of you here and a number of you that probably there those that may listen to this throughout the week that did not show up this morning because this is a hard day for some. Uh, Father's Day comes with a lot of emotion. I think the heart of that emotion comes from what my son aptly pointed out is God is our father. And all throughout the Bible, we see this imagery of God being a father. And it's wired and put together. God put us together so that as kids grow and look to their earthly father, they should be learning and experiencing what their heavenly father, to some degree, how he functioned and he is like. So when this role breaks down, whether it be to death, whether it be to abuse, abandonment, neglect, whatever it may be, it hurts and hurts deeply and leaves an unbelievable hole. So... I say this, I know there's hurt and pain with this, but I also say those of you who are fathers here or hope to be fathers here, do fathering well. We're in a series called Courageous, and we're going to talk about being strong and courageous. We're going to talk about not fearing. We're going to talk about bold. We talk about all summer, bold, courageous, audacious faith. Fathers, it is all the more important, so crucial, especially in today's world, that you stand and be men of courage. And be strong and do that thing called fathering. Even if the kids are gone and out of the home, still do that thing well. With that said, to kind of get us moving where we're headed this morning, uh, to continue to talk about our kids. We didn't have kids until we, we waited. We wanted to wait. I wanted to wait especially until we were married a while. So after four years, we find a side to have children. Now, for up to me, we might still be waiting. I mean, I am not deep down in as, as, as you look at me and say, well, you've got four kids. I am not a kid person. They're getting to the age now where I'm like, oh, I can finally understand them. I can work with them. When they're the, I'm just not um, a baby kid person and I value kids to death. I cannot wait until we have this director of children's ministry role filled and when we're we're a church that takes these phenomenal volunteers we have and continue to get better and better at at caring spiritually for children and helping families that well it's I value it deeply but I'm not a kid person. More than that I valued a couple things. One is I valued my freedom and I know I watched friends start to have kids. And as you have kids, and I've learned this now, I've got four. Freedom goes out the window. I mean, you can't just pick up and go on a date. You've now got a babysitter to worry about. You can't just pick up and head on a trip. You can't just, it, it changes the dinner table. It changes everything about life changes. And suddenly that freedom disappears. I also love and value a thing called sleep. 
And after having four kids, I've watched my own sleep-deprived self at times. I see others that have kids. You lose sleep when you have children. But another thing I love and value is my wife. Now, as much as she wanted to have kids and as she looked forward to having kids, I valued her to be for me. Now, I'll just got level honest guys. I'll be honest with you. I am a little selfish and I'm, you know, I'm one of these guys that's like, give, give, you know, take, 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 take. And I loved having her attention focused at me. And I knew when you have kids, what happens? That attention is no longer singularly focused on the husband. It's now got little kids to care for. But more than that, more than all of that, there is a four letter word that probably gripped my heart more than anything else in having kids. And it's the word we're going to talk about this morning. It's the word fear. Now you say, Adam, what did you fear? Well, I feared a couple things. The first thing is I feared is I feared providing. Now, I was in school at the time to be a pastor, to be in vocational ministry. I was going to get my paycheck through serving Jesus at some level. Along with that came, sure, I know most pastors in America today are cared for. Their needs are met. Most of them have roofs over their home and clothes on their backs. But I knew full well that by choosing to go down a ministry career path, it was going to cap my, what I'm going to make in life, down at a very low number. I had a choice of business, where that number was going to be much higher, or ministry, where it was going to be much lower. So I knew that to step into ministry vocationally, it was going to limit some of the vacations I was going to be able to take. It was going to limit the fact I'm not going to have weekends off to take fun weekend trips to the beach and other places. It was going to limit a lot of things. And as well as it was going to put, I remember my first ministry job I took was $28,000 a year. Now you look at that and some of you say, well, that's what I live on. But it, as I'm thinking, let's have kids realizing that 28 is not going to climb real fast and real quick. And I want my wife to stay home and be that, that mom at home. I mean, that's scary. So I was afraid of that. More than that, the thing that probably gripped my heart even more than that with this word is I was a person who looked at uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, which are passages in the Bible that kind of give a standard for what my job, the character traits of what a pastor or an elder or an overseer should attain. Now, the schooling that I came through held that at this unrealistic standard. So I had this, this, this view in my mind that if I don't hit this, this standard, I'm not even sure God even expects us to hit, then I can't be a pastor. So one of the traits in that list is in Titus chapter one, it says that an elder's children, it uses two words, cannot be disobedient. um, And it talks about them needing to be uh, not wild and not disobedient. So I'm thinking, my goodness, I've seen a lot of wild kids. (laughs) I have some wild kids. Matter of fact, my kids (laughs) at times are not very obedient. And I watched friends have kids, and I realized, you know, I'm a person that likes to be in control. So I've been in control of my life up until this point. I've worked really hard. I've paid a lot of money to get through college. I've done a sacrifice great. So now all of a sudden, I'm going to have kids, and they're just going to mess the whole thing up. And they go, wow, I'm disobedient. I'm going to lose my career. So deep down in, i just confessing openly that that was where my fear really gripped itself. to say, man, I'm going to have kids, and all this that I've worked for is going to go out the window because I just kind of looked at it as a natural thing. I rebelled and went wild. It's just kind of what kids do. It's kind of how my mind thought. Now, as I think about this, and I began to reflect on my life, I began to really think about my life. And I think about this word, not just in context of a father and having kids, but I thought about this in the context of my life. And I realized that much of my life, much of it is driven by this word. 
And I began to think and think about friends and people I've interacted with and shared accountability stuff with. And I realized, you know what? I think it's a common thing. I think many of us are gripped by this word. So let me share some illustrations in my own life that go broader than just me having kids and see if you don't relate to some of them. And I think in some level we struggle with it. It's the first one. Do you know why I bought my first car? I bought my first car because of this word. I feared rejection. Now, when I got my driver's license, my parents so graciously bestowed upon me a 1980, I'm not sure what it was, Pontiac station wagon. Now, if you remember these things in the 80s, they had the wood grain paneling, and they had this big door that swung open in the very back, and then you had that third row seat that looked the other direction. This thing was, I was I'm like, no, no please. So they, but I, I needed a car, so I would drive this thing. And here's how it was known as the SS Nagel at Warwick High School. I'd pull in. I'd pull into the parking lot, and I mean, it was here comes Adam and the SS Nagel sailing in to dock his ship for the day. They made me drive my sisters. They made me, I'm like, I gotta get a small car that doesn't have room for passengers so I can stop hauling them around. I mean, I just, so what I did, the first chance I got, I earned, saved up enough money to then go in debt a little more to buy a pickup truck. No back seat. No need to take the sisters around. It's four wheel drive, big high wheels. I was cool now. So I think about, my purchase of my first car was driven and at the end of the day to avoid rejection, fear of rejection. I think about my decision not to go to college out of high school. Now, I tell people, and this is partially true, I tell people at the time, I thought, well, you know what wisdom says to take some time and kind of figure out where you want to go and, and you'll make much better decisions in your degree choice. You know, the real reason was I was scared to death. I graduated high school with a 2.79 GPA. I struggled with academics. I was in the IU 13 through most of elementary school. Academics was not my strong suit. So here I am going to go to college. Aside from that, I was going to play football. So I excelled at football in high school. Now here I am looking at this scary step to college and realizing, do I have what it takes? And I was scared to death. That's why a couple weeks before the practice, while I was supposed to report for practice, I called the coach up and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to check out, called the school up, checked out of school altogether because deep down in, I was afraid. Now, it's the reason why I dated some of the girls that I did. Think about this one. Hopefully, I don't think any girls I dated are here or would be here. They might listen to this online. I apologize to them now if they are. You know, I dated some of the girls, a lot of the girls I did because they weren't the girl of my dreams. Think of it. Doesn't this happen, guys? You have a dream to date her. There she is. You see her coming down the hall of high school, and, man, you're, the stars begin to spin. You, her long, flowing blonde hair. I was a blonde guy. Her, and you just begin, there she is. That's the girl I want to date. But you know that to ask her, risk what? Rejection. No way. And matter of fact, it could even risk then word getting out through all of high school. Did you hear who Nagel, that's what was known as Nagel. You hear who Nagel asked out? What a loser. I was scared of that. So what I did is I said, well, I can't hit that bar for sure. I might be able to, so let's bump it down and we'll go after this girl here. So a lot of the girls I dated were driven because of this word here. I wasn't, didn't really love them. I didn't really, they weren't the girl of my, now I married the girl of my dreams, uh, but I did not date many of the girls of my dreams. My first real job, you know, what my first real job was working for my dad. 
You say, well, how's that fear-driven? Well, you know what? I avoided having to go out and put myself out there in an application and resume process. I was just able to get a job working because my dad told me I could have it. Now, at times I think is, Adam, might you not be a missionary because of fear? Why did you become a pastor? Aren't there enough churches here in America? Why become one more pastor here in America? Why not go to the parts of the world that really need Jesus? You know what I really sometimes I've had to wrestle with? Well, first of all, I hated snakes. I still do hate snakes. And for some reason, when you think of missionaries, I don't know why, I don't know why this is. There's, there's missionaries that come to America. I don't know why we think snakes, we think bugs, we think heat and hot, and we think jungles. And I don't know what it is in my mind that when I'm like, I don't like any of that stuff. Heat, hot, bug, snakes, jungles, that's, we'll just exit all off the list. God, you can call me anywhere but those places. And then aside from that, I knew that I failed. The only class I failed ever, I mean, I had some low grades, but the only class I ever truly failed was Spanish. I just could not figure out how to learn a language. So I think to be a missionary, guess what you got to do? It's a pretty important thing. Learn a language. So I wonder at times if possibly, maybe, I think I've settled this one in my own heart, but I had to work through this, that maybe I didn't become a missionary because of fear. The one that probably grips me the most is why I became a Christian. Do you know why I became a Christian? Fear. Do you know what I was afraid of? hell. All I remember was driving home one night, the pastor, we had night services then, and I was in church all the time. All I remember was a pastor talking this gloom and doom, terrible place called hell. Now, I know hell is real. All I remember driving home, and I remember, man, oh my goodness, I think I'm going to go in my pants. This is so scary. This is not a, dad, how do I avoid this place called hell? So he led me in a prayer to accept Jesus to avoid hell because I was so scared. It wasn't because I realized I was separated from God. It wasn't because I wanted to be close to him. It wasn't because I I saw my sin and I saw this valuable person named Jesus that I wanted to run towards and experience life. It was because I was scared to death of hell. Now, and I think of some of the smaller everyday things. Maybe you relate to some of these. Why didn't I confront that friend that I knew I needed to confront? Or the family member that I knew I needed to say something to. Fear. I think of my times, I think most of my coworkers now know Jesus. I hope most of my coworkers know Jesus. Crystal and Chris here at the church and others. Um, let's pray they know Jesus. I think they know Jesus. But I remember working in places where I had a lot of coworkers who didn't know Jesus. And I remember at times just that average everyday interaction. Why didn't I say more to them? It's fear at the end of the day. Why didn't I take my day off? Why did I work through my day off? Why don't I just honor the Sabbath? It's fear. Why do I use that silly smartphone at times to scroll through my emails when I should be engaged with my children at the dinner table? Why do I do that? It's fear. It's fear that I might miss something. It's fear that I might, someone at church might need me, someone this. It's fear. When at the end of the day, I should be full throttle engaged with my kids. I'm here scrolling through to make sure I'm not missing anything that I'm going to be held responsible for. So I look at this word, I look at our lives, and I realize, you know, so much of my life, I think so much of our lives is caught up with this fear of failure, this fear that I'm not quite sure I want to step out there and take that courageous step to advance God's vision and God's call for my heart and my life, whatever it may be. I find that I spend and we spend so much time and energy analyzing the what-ifs of life. 
We spend time painting the worst-case scenarios and daydreaming what could happen and what might happen. We work so hard on contingent plans to minimize the losses. If I go here, man, let's do this. I could really lose here. We spend so much time planning and processing, trying to figure out how and how much. And, and, and we spend so much time, I find, you know, licking our finger and sticking it in the air to see which way is the wind blowing because that's the way I might want to travel because that's what they think. And I'm, at the end of the day, afraid of them and rejection. We spend so much time captured with this word. Now, some have said, and I've heard it said, and I disagree with this, but they, I Some have said that faith is the opposite of this word. Now, the reason I disagree is because at the end of the day, fear relies on faith. Really think about this. Doesn't it take just as much faith to think of the worst case scenarios that might come to you in the future as it does faith to believe that the positive could come? I mean, when I think of my life and I think about the fears and the what ifs, and I look forward at life and I think, well, man, if I do that, this could happen and this could happen and that might happen. That takes faith. Who's to say it's going to happen? I have faith in a discouraging, hopeless future versus faith in who God is. I have faith in the what ifs of life and the worst case scenarios as opposed to who God is in life. So at the end of the day, fear is really rooted in faith. It's just the wrong kind of faith. And to accomplish the impossible, the thing that we'll see this morning that Joshua talks about, to accomplish the impossible, to really step out with bold, audacious, courageous faith and do what God has called me to do, it's important that we root our faith, root my faith deep into God's faithfulness. Not my faith, but God's faithfulness and who he is. Turn with me to the book of Joshua as we continue this series. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're new to the Bible, or you're new to Christianity, you're going to find the book of Joshua start in the front of your Bible. You're going to see go through the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then you will run into the Deuteronomy, and then you run into the book of Joshua. We're here studying, talking about courageous faith all summer, what it means to step out. Joshua is a person who led a nation called Israel into the promised land, into say God saying, this is the land I'm going to give you. It's an incredible place, an incredible dream that's laid out before them. And he says, I promise you, you're going to have this. Let's go get it. Joshua is the leader of that land. So we're talking all summer. The same God that Joshua served is the same God we serve. God worked the impossible through him. He can work it through us. Let's step out with courageous faith and do what God's called us to do. Look at me at Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Last week, we talked. The very first thing God said to Joshua is, Moses, my servant, is dead. So last week, we talked about the principle, if I am going to take bold, courageous steps of faith into the future that God has for me, I must sever myself from the past. So now moving on, let's look at another principle. Verse 5. This is God speaking to Joshua. He says, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. No one. No one is going to stand up against you. You're going to walk into this land and it is yours. Verse, the rest of the verse. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Then verse 7, he repeats the very same thought. Be strong, and then he adds a little emphasis, and very courageous. 
Don't just be strong and courageous. Be very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Now, we're going to talk about those verses next week and about what law, what role the law and the Bible plays in our courageous faith. Verse 8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Verse 9, have I not commanded you... Be strong and courageous. Did you catch a theme here? Repeated now by God to Joshua three times here. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Then you look down at the very end of verse 18. Joshua then rallies the troops. He pulls them all together and he says, men, we are about to go into battle. We're about to cross the river. We're about to go do this thing that God's called us to do. And look at the very last charge he gives, the very end of verse 18. Only, he says, be strong and what? Courageous. Four times we see this phrase show up in this chapter, be strong and courageous. Three times by God, speaking directly to Joshua, once by Joshua, then speaking to the men. Now, it's interesting. This is the same, these are the same words that God used when he spoke to Moses in the beginning of Deuteronomy. We looked at this last week in chapter 1 and chapter 3. God said to Moses, here's this guy named Joshua. He's roughly 40 years old. I want you to instill in his heart courage. I want you to command him to be strong and courageous. Moses told, was told to build this same thought into Joshua's life. It's interesting. Then at the end of Moses' life, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses emphasizes then, repeating three times to Joshua as he's getting ready to die. Three times he says to him, be strong and courageous. Now to ask this question, why is this such a big deal here in chapter one? Why does God emphasize this? Most people that study this book and talk about this book, you know what they immediately run to? And this is partially true. Most people say, well, the task that lays before Joshua is huge. The giants in the land are big. The things that God has called this nation to is going to take strong, courageous faith. The task is big. My personal opinion is that's not all the reason God is speaking this into the heart of Joshua. See, when I look at this and I study this, in reality, what I believe happened is Joshua has taken his lumps in life. He has lived life. He is now 80 plus years old in Joshua chapter 1. And he was a man who was this. If you remember back, we looked at this chapter of two weeks ago, Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It's the story where the spies go into this land to check it out, to see what's there. And they come back and they are scared to death. And they begin to spread a bad report all through the nation. Man, we can't do this. I know God's cause it. We can't do it. So two men, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb is kind of the leader of this whole charge. But Joshua kind of tags along with him. And they both speak up in, in Numbers chapter 14. It says this. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of... And I'm not going to read... There you go. You can figure out how to pronounce that yourself. I know I'm supposed to be a Bible student, but that's one that I'm like, wow. There's a name for you for a uh, name your next child. 
Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb come along, and this is their speech, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. So they get up in front of all of Israel. They tear their clothes, I think, to just kind of dramatically say, guys, please listen to us. We, we are we're passionate about this. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, so the whole nation, here they are standing in front of the entire nation. It says, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. The verse goes on. He's going to give this land to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not. In other words, they're saying, you guys are talking about not to go do this. Please don't me guys, please let's go do what he's asked us to do. Let's go take the land and look at the very next thing they say to him and do not what do not be afraid. Don't be afraid guys. Do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. What happens then? What does the nation of Israel do? They grab stones and they say, let's kill these idiots. I mean, look, they're outvoted. Ten to two. They don't know what they're talking about. We, and they're ready to kill. And then God steps in. And remember the story. We talked about this two weeks ago. What does God do? God says, okay, I've had enough of this. Joshua and Caleb, you're allowed to go into the land. But every other person over the age of 20 is going to be what? killed. Now, I want you to think, we think about that, but I want you to think about Joshua and Caleb, who are both in their 40s at this time. 40-year-old men standing with courage and saying, we can do this. We have this courage. Think about the people that were killed. Family. Brothers, sister, neighbors, friends, co-workers, What Joshua and Caleb watched happen over the next 40 years is people that they know and they love and they've done life with drop dead because they wouldn't trust God in this courage to go into the land. Makes it a little more personal. I think it takes it out of from the Bible story, story that we hear as kids and makes, brings it down to our level and says, wow, could you imagine watching a whole generation of people disappear? People that you love and you care for and you've done battle with. Joshua had courage. I think Joshua was a brave individual. I think Joshua, to stand up and give this speech, meant he had a little bit of courage. But what ends up happening is life takes it out of us, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you can relate to that? How many of you can honestly relate? I mean, I, I am, amen. I mean, I say it all the time. Life, as I'm, it takes it out of you. You try and step up and do the right thing in your life, and it is going, you are going to, at some level, we talked about this, remember the first week, at some level, you're going to get beat down and sold out and left alone. Trying to do the right thing is not easy. Trying to be courageous in today's world and go against the flow is not easy. It takes it out of us. And it took it out of Joshua. I think so then we get to this Joshua chapter 1, and God is saying, hey, listen, man. Be strong and courageous. I think not only does life take it out of us, you know what else life does to us? I think life also gives us a little more to live for. Fear actually, fear is a gift. 
What fear does, number one, it tells me there's trouble around. And so if I'm walking into some place where, where something bad is about to happen, I begin to feel fear, so I know I need to get out of here. So in that way, it's a gift. But it's also a gift because at the end of the day, fear exposes what I value and what I trust. So not only has life beat it out of Joshua, I think Joshua has lived now 40 years out in the desert. And he's beginning to realize what he has He lost a lot, and now he's regained family. He's regained friends, and he values it probably more than ever because he knew what he lost. Now, here he is looking at, you know what? Fear, fear really exposes what I'm afraid, what I serve, what I live for. Here's how I've seen this work in my life. In my youth... When I first came to Jesus, when I first had that moment where I felt Jesus call and I, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, I understand I'm a sinner, I draw into relationship with God, I began to feel this call to work with troubled, abused, and neglected and homeless boys. Now, I held, found this passion. I wanted to go live in New York City in, in some of the toughest parts of the city and work alongside of and with these broken, hurting teenage boys. Now, when it's just me, and you go back and you read my journals back there, it's just me with this call. It's me and God. Guess what I am? I'm bold. I'm courageous. I'm preaching a sermon that Joshua in Joshua chapter 13 and 14, let's go take the hill, man. I can do this. Guess what happens? I get married. What happened when I got married? Marriage is a great thing. But guess who I love and I value and I trust? My wife, Tanya. Guess what I begin to now struggle with? The fear of losing my wife. Now to say, let's go live in the streets of New York City, I'm now thinking about, i got to bring my beautiful bride along with me. I could lose her in the streets of New York City. See how this works? See, life beats it out of us, but it also gives us stuff to live for. And I began to value my wife, and that's a good thing. I began to trust my wife. That's a good thing. But if it replaces, if she takes the place of Jesus in my life, It's a very bad thing. Then guess what happens? I have kids. And I'll never forget, we go into Charlotte, North Carolina. We're working with a church in Charlotte, North Carolina to work with, with, we're trying to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church, really work with the poor and the hurting in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we had this conviction, if we're going to work with the poor and hurting, we've got to live with the poor and hurting. So we began to look at homes to buy in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the toughest, roughest neighborhoods. I'll never forget one particular story. When I, when I was at work that day, Tanya went to see a house with a friend. And here's the report. She comes back to me. She goes back. She says, well, Adam, here's what we got to start to face. When I got to that home, first of all, there was barbed wire completely around this home because it was empty. And the reason I put the barbed wire around is because when you went to the front door, there were crowbar marks all the way up and down the front door and around in the windows. And she says, then when we're in the home... Well, we're in the home, and I'm seeing the neighborhood around me. I'm watching the cops pass regularly. I hear two gunshots go off here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We began to do research on the school district that we would have been placed in. And guess what? We realized our kids were going to be placed in great danger because it was one of the worst schools in all of Charlotte, North Carolina. So suddenly, what happens? Who do I value and trust? My kids. I love them. Suddenly now, this bold, courageous faith of let's go work with takes on a whole new meaning because it could mean the lives of my children. See how this works? So I think not only did Joshua have it kicked out of him, but then he had life happen and he began to have some things worth living for. And at the end of the day, God's message is, hey, Joshua, Joshua, man, come on. I know you've gained some wisdom with your age, but your youthful zeal... (laughs) 
the candle doesn't burn quite as bright. So God comes to him in Joshua chapter 1. I think he speaks to him. He says, hey, man, let's pick it back up. Let's be bold and courageous. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, at this passage, the writer of Hebrews is actually looking back to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, that, that speech where the spies come back that we just looked at. He's looking back, and here's the application that the writer of Hebrews begins to give. See to it, brothers, speaking to us today, looking back at that story, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But look at the word it's used. Here's the heart of church. This is the heart of church. This is the heart of the church of Jesus Christ. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Encourage strengthen, walk with. If we're out there living life as we're called to live it, we need people alongside of us to encourage us. So encourage one another as long as it's called today because you're not promised tomorrow so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Then look at what it says. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. I think The writer of Hebrews gets it. I think God clearly gets it. He looks at Joshua and says, man, you once had unbelievable confidence, but life's kicked it out of you. You've got a lot that's given you. Hold firmly to what you had at first. You know what I love? I love one of my favorite things to do. One of my favorite things to do is to see someone come into a relationship for the very first time with Jesus Christ. Do you know why I love it? Do you know what they possess that a lot of Christians that have been sitting in the pews of churches for years and years and years and years do not possess a lot of times? An unbelievable, zealous passion to say, I am alive for the very first time. And the writer of Hebrews says, go back to that. Hold on to that, that you had. You, when you came in to know, to know Jesus, you didn't get all your theological questions answered. But what you did have and you knew for sure is I have eternal life. What I do and I have for sure is I have a God who loves me and is for me and is with me. And it brings such bold confidence. And you say, I can go out there and I can live now. I think the writer of Hebrews says, go back to that time. I think God is saying to Joshua, go back to that time. Regain that bold, courageous faith. Be strong and courageous. The thing I would ask us, ask myself this this week as I process this, seek God and really name your fear in the process. I mean, what is it that you're afraid of? Journal it this week. Name it. Do you fear losing your spouse? Do you fear losing your job? Do you fear being out of control in your home? Do you fear not being able to pay for the bills? What is it that you fear? Because chances are that thing that you fear has begun to sap you of this confidence. It's begun to pull you away. It's begun to replace who Jesus is in your life with this stuff that you're living for, your security and your value. I think Psalm 34 says it it best. Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. I'm seeking God, he says. He delivered me from what? All my fears. Because God is first in my life. I'm chasing after him. I'm naming this stuff. I'm facing the giants in the land, and I'm naming them and calling them out, and he's delivering me from them. Now, so here we are. Life's taking it out of Joshua. Life's also giving him something to live for. So what's God's message to Joshua? How does Joshua fix it? 
The first service, I blundered and botched this up when I said this. So basically, God's looking at, God's looking at Joshua, and he says, basically, listen, dude. Does he say to him, pull your big boy pants on and let's go? Does he say to him, hey, man, pull, your, pull your, the bootstraps up and let's make this thing happen? What does he say to Joshua? Have more faith? What does he say to help him, to give him this courage? Look at verse 5. Look at the very end of verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor what? I'm not going to leave you. I'm always here. I'm not going to forsake you. Now, he repeats this very same thought. Look down at verse 9. Verse 9, it says, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For, here's the reason why, Joshua Here's the reason you hold on to. For the Lord, your God, will what? Will be with you. Not only will he be with you, he'll be with you wherever you go. You know, he says to Joshua, I think the message that he gives him, he says, Joshua, it's not about erasing your fear. It's not about getting rid of your fear. Matter of fact, what I have learned, I think God grasped this too. Whenever God has called you to something big, it is very natural and normal for the fear to be just as large. When you talk to people who have accomplished unbelievable things in life for, the, for God and the glory of Jesus, and you say, did you have fear in your life? They will, sell, they will often say, you bet. But they see God's promises eclipsing their fear. They see who God is as being much bigger. So they say, you know what? I'm going to allow God to encourage me with his faithfulness. Not my own faith. This is a huge deal to me. This is what I'm coming back to saying faith and fear, they're not necessarily opposites. I think I hear a lot of people say, we well, got to have faith. Faith in what? Ask someone that sometime. When I hear people say at a funeral, boy, this was a real person of faith. I say, faith in what? Who cares if you're a person of faith? I can have faith in our economy. Where's it going to get me? I can have faith in the dollar. I can have faith in this building. I can have faith in all kinds of things. So it's not just about having faith. It's not even about, it's not, at the end of the day, ultimately, it's about having faith in Jesus, period. Matter of fact, my faith isn't even in my ability to have faith. My faith isn't even in my ability to believe in Jesus. Do you know why? I'll be real honest. As a pastor, and I, this is true of me, you know, unless I'm just some kind of crazy nut job, which I know at times people wonder, but at the end of the day, what I've come to realize, there are days when I don't perceive and feel God. There are days, there are days when I have my doubts. So at the end of the day, my faith isn't even in my ability to believe in Jesus. But my faith is in his faithfulness. My faith is rooted in who Jesus is. At the end of the day, this verse is one of my favorite verses for this teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, how many of you are faithless? How many of you have been faithless this week, this morning? He will remain what? He's going to remain faithful. For, what's the reason? He cannot disown himself. What does that mean? 
first of all, I'm creating the image of God. Second of all, when I become a believer in Jesus, I have the Bible teaches the spirit of God has now inside of me and has sealed me until the day of redemption, the scriptures say. So when he looks down at Adam, he says, man, he's struggling today. He's struggling to even have, to have faith in me. But you know what? I'm not going to disown him. I'm not going to lose faith in him because I am there with him. So at the end of the day, it's about having faith, but faith rooted in the person of Jesus, faith rooted in who God is, faith rooted in God's faithfulness, not even my ability to have faith. If you want to accomplish the impossible, our faith has got to be rooted there in God's faithfulness. You know, as I think about all the energy, I think about all the energy that goes in at times to brainstorming all the things that can go wrong. How much energy we have in this room put towards bad stuff in life, the what-ifs, the crazy scenarios. For me, it's in the shower. I'm a dreamer in the shower. I don't know what it is about the shower, but, man, that's where I have my imaginary scenarios paint out for me. You know how many negative, scary futures I've painted for myself in the shower when I'm trying to get clean? It's a scary thing. I think, Adam, why do you do that? I mean, isn't this true? 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of what? Sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind, of disciplined mind. So I think about this and I think, my goodness, imagine. Just imagine with me for a minute. Imagine if we in this room, people who say, I love Jesus, or I am trying to love Jesus, I'm trying to walk. Imagine if we use the same energy that we use on the what ifs of life, if we use that same energy to keep my mind sound on the God is statements of life. Imagine if that same energy I'd constantly put into, wow, God will never leave me nor forsake me. God loves me. I am adopted. I am his. I am, I am in the family of God. Imagine if that same energy that we use towards the negative, scary, what ifs, horrible, fear-based stuff in life, if we put it towards God is. If we put it towards saying, God, what do you want me to do based on who you are? God, what does he want me to do based on your faithfulness in my life? And based on that, God, you know what? I will have courageous faith and I will step out and be a person of courage. You know, Joshua was an 80-year-old man who stood with a huge task in front of him. God comes to him and meets him and says, Joshua, I know you've seen the ugliness of life. I know you've been given some things to live for in life. And I know this task is unreal but I need you to be strong and courageous if you're going to take on what I've called you to take on. And Joshua, to do that, please see and understand who I am and my faithfulness and hold on to me. I will never leave you or forsake you. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the message that we can hold on to where you say you will never leave us or forsake us. God, it is easy for us to forget that. It's easy for me to forget that. But God, help us to see and understand that our faithfulness to you really depends 
on your faithfulness to us. My deep-rooted faith that I hope I have and I continue to try and strengthen is really dependent on your faith in me. And the reality that you will never leave me or forsake me. So help me to be a faithful person that's clinging to you, that is clinging to who you are. God, help me as a person to put my energies not into the what-ifs of life and the fear-based thinking, but to put my energies, those same energies, into who you are in life. Put my energies into dreaming about what you want me to do, what you've called me to do as a husband and father of my home and a pastor of this church. Help us as people to do that, God. And God, for those that are in this room here this morning that maybe are uncertain about their relationship with you, maybe if, if they were really pushed and asked and they said, you know what, I'm not sure I have a relationship with Jesus. I'm not sure if I died today, where, what would happen to me? I'm not sure who God is. And who, God, would, would you right now speak to those people and understand, they just understand that you're a God who loves, you're a God who's for them. You're not a God that runs around with a fear-driven system trying to beat them up and scare them into a relationship with you. But you're a God that's saying, you're in my image, I love you. I want to be with you, but I can only be with you if you have Jesus and have faith in Jesus. God, right now, if there's a person in this room right now, God, would you speak to their hearts and maybe for the first time they embrace Jesus for the very first time so that you can scrub away that fear and you can give them a, a spirit of love and of sound mind and of power so that they can walk into life so we can face the rest of today and tomorrow with courage on our heart because we know you are walking with us and you will never leave us or forsake us, even when we are faithless. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.